For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The first time I thought I'd really like to talk to Dimitri Daskalakis was nearly 10 years ago. I'd read about the work he was doing in the newspaper. A reporter had followed him around at an after-hours gay sex club in New York City called Paddles. It was four in the morning, and he was there to give men meningitis vaccines. That was an exciting, not much sleep time. (laughs) Back then, bacterial meningitis was tearing through the gay community in New York. A handful of people had died in this outbreak. Dr. Daskalakis didn't have an official role. He was just an attending physician at a public hospital. Regardless, Dr. Dimitri was becoming a familiar face at New York's bathhouses and leather clubs. It started out with me with a backpack and some rapid tests um, that I went in with and did some tests. Found out that 13% of the people that I tested had undiagnosed HIV. Wow. So I'd already kind of been the bathhouse HIV testing doctor. (laughs) (laughs) You were that guy. I was that guy. And so we already had this sort of infrastructure, but then, you know, it's one thing to sort of stick someone's finger, and it's another thing to be like, I'm going to give a vaccine in a sex club. After the meningitis outbreak subsided, Dr. Daskalakis went on to lead HIV-AIDS prevention for the city health department. Fast forward to today, and his work has taken him all the way up to the White House, which is where he's helping lead the Biden administration's fight against monkeypox. He's the deputy coordinator for the White House response. Like a decade ago, you went where the government couldn't because you had cred. You showed up in a leather jacket. You were fine not wearing a shirt. You got tattoos. Now you are the government. I still am fine not wearing a shirt. (laughs) I've seen your Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, I've always lived like exactly my authentic life. And that I think has been one of the important like superpowers that I have in doing public health. I was, you know, incident commander over like a big measles outbreak in New York City where like the main community I was interacting with were like uh, a very orthodox group of Jews in New York City. And like I learned so much, but the same skills that I used to sort of work with the community I was the most familiar with really came in handy in terms of being culturally responsive and sensitive to another universe. If you could tell 2013, Dimitri, that now instead of giving vaccines at a sex club, he was going to be leading the White House response to the next outbreak in his community? Like, would he believe that you'd be like in a three-piece suit walking into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? I didn't really have that in my bingo card, to be honest. Today on the show, the Biden administration has gotten plenty of criticism for being slow to respond to monkeypox. Dr. Daskalakis is going to explain why he thinks his radically open approach might be part of turning the tide. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. 
but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis has been doing a lot of learning in real time about monkeypox. Before this outbreak, he was the director of the Division of HIV Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control. This new role makes sense because this new strain of monkeypox, 90% of the time, is showing up in one group of people, gay men. It's unprecedented, right? This is not... This is not the monkeypox that we were taught about in, in Infectious Disease Fellowship, which was like, you know, very specific, a zoonotic disease that passes from animals to humans. That's not really the disease you're looking at right now. No, it's completely different. This, this is acting a lot differently and is in a completely different social network. And so it really calls upon, you know, not only sort of the tools and the kit that you have for monkeypox, but also the tools and the kit that you have for uh, uh, infections that are associated with sexual activity and also with the communities that are affected. And so like everyone brushed up, like we all, I mean, we have fabulous pox experts, um, smallpox and monkeypox experts at CDC, and they really, they were really uh, important to us all getting up to speed. But then, you know, everyone had to pivot because this outbreak is unprecedented and the way that it was moving in the population was unlike anything that we have learned or seen. Yeah, it's funny because... Early on in May, the administration really was projecting confidence about their response to monkeypox. There are a few confirmed cases in the U.S., and some countries are imposing 21-day quarantines for people who are infected or even in some cases just exposed. Should Americans expect something similar? No, I don't think so. Look, we've had this uh, monkeypox in the larger numbers in the past, number one. Number two, we have vaccines to care for, to take care of it. Number three, uh, thus far, there doesn't seem to be a need for any kind of extra, extra effort beyond what's going on. And I wonder if you, with all of your knowledge of how some things spread in the gay community and the stigma and how that plays into treatment, I wonder if you were maybe a little bit more on edge about where this could go. I feel like at that point, I was more grateful that I was involved than on edge because I think we were all sort of working off of the monkeypox playbook of like, you know, what happens is you, know, you have an exposure, you do vaccination of the exposed folks and it's controlled. And so when we saw that that's not the story here, like the pivot that the response took to sort of reconsider their vaccination strategy, going from like a ring vaccination. So that's like post-exposure. Just vaccinating all the people who are exposed as opposed to a community. Exactly. Like known, like someone that you know is exposed for sure, you would vaccinate. Ring vaccination, vaccinating an infected person's close contacts. It can stop a virus in its tracks if you work fast. But over the course of June, as Pride celebrations played out around the country, it started to become clear that this virus was moving more quickly than public health workers anticipated. Dr. Daskalakis says he got a fuller picture once the epidemiological data started coming in. It took like the epidemiology to teach us like this was moving a lot differently. And so I think that, again, this is a, a story that is really characterized by a lot of pivots. 
So every time we learn something new, there's a pivot made to address it. And so I think I think one of the most important pivots, though, has been you know increasing vaccine supply to be able to sort of be, be more broad in terms of the folks that we're vaccinating. In the midst of all this, I, I wonder how you've balanced your role as a queer health warrior and a government official. Like, over the summer, there was vigorous debate about whether people like you should be telling the gay community, listen, you should limit partners because while monkeypox is not a quote-unquote sexually transmitted disease, it's it's transmitted by close contact and it's spreading vigorously in this community. Thank you. And I'll now things tr- turn things over to Dr. Daskalakis. Thank you so much, Dr. Walensky. Uh, today, I wanted to provide an update on a key element of our response. That's working closely with gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. It has been a top priority since the earliest days of the outbreak to uh, communicate in plain and direct language about how monkeypox is transmitted and what actions people, specifically men who have sex with men, can take to avoid exposure to this virus. And you kind of took a middle path. You said, I think people should, you know, abstain from too many sexual partners, but this isn't a forever thing. And, you know, obviously you have your own kind of cred in the community. Can you talk about balancing all that? Because it seems like a tightrope. It is a tightrope, but the tightrope that I balance every day with HIV. So it's, you know, what we know from the story of HIV is that, and this, again, monkeypox is totally different than HIV, but some of the story, some of the sort of content is very similar is that, you know, really you need to give folks harm reduction strategies that work for them. Because, I mean, there's you know, a whole range of humans in terms of what they're going to listen to. It's like your folks who are very like conservative sexually, you barely need to reach them. They're going to they're gonna be pretty pretty careful. Folks who are in the middle, they're swayable. And the folks who are um, having a lot of sex, if you're able to even, you know, address or change your behavior a bit, um, you're going to make, you're going to like hit some benefit. And as the data also increased over time, we also became, I think, stronger about being clear um, that, you know, that the best strategy right now, while we're waiting for like adequate vaccine supply in the U.S. and folks to be vaccinated, is to reduce multiple partners or one-time partners and anonymous contacts. I'm not sure if you've seen the CDC guidance on safer sex and social gatherings, but it's a pretty frank document that uses language that's pretty clear. And that, I think, is not sort of the common way that public health has traditionally communicated to gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. And so that, I think, is really important. With those guidelines, were you specifically like, I don't want to use straight language here. I don't want to sound like a prude. Like, let's say it like this. That's on brand. <laughs> so we, so I definitely wanted to make sure that the language was really frank. Give me an example, like something you wanted to tweak. Oh, for sure. I mean, I feel like, you know, we used know, very clear terminology. Like, so, you know, we didn't shy away from talking about sex toys and fetish gear and all of the things that we want to make sure that people understand. We talked to community, we kept getting feedback, it was iterative. And so I I often refer back to uh, a document that inspired the safer sex guidance that I put out when I was in New York City Department of Health for COVID. Um, it's all inspired by a document that's called, you know, I think it's how to have sex during an epidemic, one approach. And it was community driven. How to have sex in an epidemic, one approach. That was a guide to safe sex that came out in 1983 when HIV AIDS was spreading all over New York. It was published independently by a group of activists using donations. 
The guide gave information about the virus and recommended its readers use condoms and stick to certain lower-risk sex activity. It's a very frank, very clear document. And I remember sort of when we were sort of sitting in the office during COVID saying, like, you know, gee, we really need to do this in New York City. We really need to make a document um, that, like, leads and tells people, like, strategies to prevent COVID sort of in more intimate encounters. And so we did. And it was really based on that. And so flash forward to monkeypox. And it's like really pulling that idea out of the same toolkit and saying, like, public health needs to lead with this because we're going to be able to give people guidance that is correct based on science and not stigmatizing. When we come back, the federal government has faced a lot of criticism over monkeypox. Did this administration really learn its lessons from COVID? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Taiwan with today in the Middle East. What happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. I want to talk about where we are now with monkeypox. There's some good news, right? Like the number of monkeypox diagnoses are on the decline as of this month. Yeah. So looking at at monkeypox, so we're still seeing cases, we're seeing a deceleration of of new cases. It's not consistent across the country. There are some jurisdictions that are are definitely decelerating and they tend to be the jurisdictions that were earliest in the outbreak. New York, Los Angeles. Yeah. Like your New York, Illinois, like your, your California, it's like your places where you had the initial sort of outbreaks. But the U.S. has still got a really high case count, right? Like yes. more than 20,000 cases. And just for context, there are 55,000 cases globally. It's a healthy chunk. Yes. So we're over 20,000. And, and but what, what we're seeing is that the doubling time of the outbreak is, uh, is increasing, which means that it's taking longer to double the number of cases. So it used to be in July, it took eight days to double the cases. And now we're at over 25 days to double the cases. So we're flattening the curve. We're flattening the curve. Can I ask you to do something that's going to be hard for you? Because I hear the optimism in your voice, but I think you can do it, which is what honest grade would you give to the administration for its monkeypox response so far? I think that I have to give them a solid A. Really? I would, because this is this is an unprecedented. I, I feel like I've worked on this since May when I was at CDC. And like, I saw the urgency with which people were moving with some of the challenges that were just seemingly insurmountable. And I've seen them being overcome. 
But you started to say they're unprecedented. And I think that's why people have gotten stuck and sometimes angry about the administration's response to monkeypox, because obviously we just had COVID. So people feel like with monkeypox, we've seen some of the same challenges we had with COVID right after, where in the beginning, it was really hard to get a monkeypox test. And then it was really hard to get a monkeypox vaccine. And then when the vaccines were out there, there were long lines and this whole sort of people gaming the digital system. This is what happened in New York City. That's where I am, where people had real questions about whether the right people were getting treatment. And so it felt like a retread. And as someone who follows public health closely, I was frustrated. And I can't imagine you weren't. I'll say I've been in a lot of responses. And every response feels like it needs to go faster. And that's always true because it's an emergency. But if you actually look back at this one and look at the speed at which some things happened, it really demonstrates that some of the sort of some of the lessons and strategies from COVID were actually working. So, you know, the time from when the first case happened, a week later, CDC was already talking to commercial labs to get the lab commercialized. Within a month, that lab, those labs were commercialized and available like for doctors to order and other providers to order through routine mechanisms. That's unprecedented. The speed of going from a test that was in a public health lab all the way to commercialization, that's like a direct lesson from COVID. That moves really quickly. Vaccine. So this is a uh, uh, vaccine that's stored in SNS, so in the Strategic National Stockpile. No one imagined using a bioterrorist preventing vaccine as a strategy to um, address a infection that was moving through close skin-to-skin contact in the context of sexual activity. And so the system had to pivot. Well, and I guess I wonder if it gave the administration a false sense of security. Like, oh, we got this. This is in the stockpile. So we're good. Oh, gee, I don't, I don't think anyone had a false sense of security. I think from where I sat at CDC and then now where I sit at the White House, I feel like everyone's aware that the challenges are real. And just I think that the creativity with which those challenges have been addressed has been remarkable, as has the speed. I feel like what you're saying is like COVID response was probably frustrating, but all those frustrating things may have happened this time, but we got past them faster. So I definitely think that that's probably a great summary. Like COVID, I think, really taught so many lessons. And, and, you know, one of those was like onboarding testing faster. Everyone wants everything to be faster, and they're right. It's an emergency. But I was amazed at the speed with which commercialization of the labs happens so doctors can order it. Can you get the genie back in the bottle? Like, do you think we can eliminate monkeypox at this point, or is it too late in the U.S.? I think that we are, like, on the way to really tight control of this outbreak. That doesn't sound like elimination. Well, because my next sentence is uh, that we have to really also focus not only domestically, but also internationally. And that's going to be a really important focus of the work that we're doing, because, you know, I think that there's always the possibility of reintroduction. And, you know, I think definitely thinking about getting like the folks at highest risk vaccinated is really important. So I think that, you know, I I would love to shoot for elimination. Um, Today, I'm going to take really tight control. I think the major challenge right now is vaccine distribution. You've talked about it a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. Last month, you and others in the administration made a decision that some saw as controversial, which was to split up the dose of 
the monkeypox vaccine into five doses and give it slightly differently under the skin as opposed to inside the body. This may be a dumb question, but why can we just not get more vaccine? So that's not a dumb question. It's actually a great question. And it's like, we have. And so it's all about the when and the how. And so, you know, I think, first of all, the intradermal strategy, given the side of the data that we have in the very thorough review done by the FDA, like that, that strategy is a really important one to expand what we already have on the ground. But this plan has been criticized. Like there was some reporting in The Washington Post. Dan Diamond and some other folks reported that the day after the FDA sort of started exploring this idea of splitting up the doses, the manufacturer called and they were hopping mad, threatening to cut off all future vaccine orders to the U.S. because they said, we don't know how workable this is. That seems bad. Well, I mean, we've reviewed their data thoroughly along with them. And I think one of their issues was around safety. We actually did look at one of their one of the studies using the vaccine virus that's used that actually you know, 7,000 people were vaccinated in Germany with the, with the same vector with like great amounts of safety. So I feel like, you know, there's there's definitely, I think, um, you know, interactions that happen with the company, but ultimately I think everyone right now is on the, on the same page. Not everyone is on the same page, of course. Earlier this month, infectious disease researchers at Erasmus Medical Center in Norway released data that raised real questions about the plan to shrink vaccine doses. It suggested shots weren't generating many antibodies in people who got them. Dr. Daskalakis says this new information doesn't really change his thinking. Not yet. That's because this Erasmus study looked at intramuscular injections rather than the intradermal injections his team is recommending. It's kind of like apples and sodas. It's not really not able to compare it to the intradermal. The next part of this is going to be that we are also going to be conducting vaccine effectiveness work um, across the country. And we're going to be looking at various dosing strategies um, with real world monkeypox challenge. Well, you'll expose people to monkeypox after giving the vaccine and see what happens. We won't have to expose anyone to monkeypox. So thankfully, we won't do that. But uh, people who are vaccinated will be able to follow them to sort of see um, sort of how effective the vaccine is against like real world Do you feel like part of your challenge as a public health communicator with outbreaks like this is finding a way to reassure people while also acknowledging that what's going to happen over the next six months or year is going to be, by definition, an experiment? So, yeah, I I think that like this is is sort of the really important part about like this communication in any outbreak, which is like what we know today could be different tomorrow. That I think is not just about outbreaks, but about everything that we do, because, you know, we we move with the science. And so, you know, the science will teach us new things and we've got to be ready to sort of, you know, express how the changes are happening. Dimitri Daskalakis, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for your work and thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis is the White House National Monkeypox Response Deputy Coordinator. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. We're led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. And I am out of here for the weekend, but stay tuned because tomorrow Lizzie O'Leary is here with What Next TBD. She is going to be talking about the rural communities that are fighting for affordable internet and the broadband companies they say are standing in their way. Thanks for listening. Catch you Monday. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.